Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Mark 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Thank you, Gretchen. So before we get into this passage, can we talk about where we're going to go over the next six weeks, if that is, if you stay with us. So in Easter, we're going to be, uh, until Easter, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark together. And uh, Mark has been called the forgotten gospel, and that's for a couple of reasons. The other three are longer, include more material, they're more polished in the way that they're constructed, and uh, they're... They're even, you know, more polished. But what uh, it lacks in polish, Mark, it makes up for in vividness, action, and uh, brevity. It's short. Like, if you wanted to read it in one sitting, if you really set your mind to it, you really could. Even its structure is simple. Half of the book takes place in Galilee, so kind of Jesus' home area. And in this place in Galilee, through chapter 8, Jesus does a lot of mighty works and deeds, And uh, he is proving that he is the Messiah. 
The second half takes place mostly outside of Galilee, and it presents Jesus not just as Messiah, but as a suffering Messiah. Now, on the screen, you'll see a little star next to one of the passages, which indicates where we're going to spend our time for the next six weeks. In this section, Jesus turns his attention from the crowds and to his disciples. He is teaching his little band of followers to, to understand the nature of his mission as a Messiah. His mission statement is found in chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, it's because of this mission statement that the series that we're going to be in for the next six weeks is, is called Follow the Servant. Now, the scripture read by Gretchen begins at the highlight of the book of Mark, where the disciples acknowledge for the first time who Jesus is, the Messiah, and then it moves on quickly into several lessons for those who would wish to follow Jesus. So, lessons for following Jesus. We're going to jump right into that. We're going to see two lessons for those who would wish to follow Jesus. First, following Jesus is not a process of elimination, but a process of illumination. Now, that phrase isn't original with me, but it was so, so helpful as I began to see what the, the author was doing here. Not the process of elimination, but illumination. Now, the narrative connects here. We're gonna, we saw Gretchen read for us a narrative about a blind man being healed and then Peter confessing Jesus as Messiah. The narrative is going to connect those blind men and those disciples, and it's going to show us that those who, who are going to follow Jesus have to be dependent upon illumination. Now, that there's a connection made between disciples and blind men. We're going to see three different ways, uh, both in the wider context and then in our passage today, in which disciples and blind men have a lot in common. So the first, uh, first element that shows this connection between disciples and blind men is what I would call the blind man sandwich. Now, in today's chapter, in chapter 8, verse 22, we read about a blind man being healed. Now, one of the advantages of reading a book straight through is you begin to see some connections that you might otherwise miss. Now, if you were just reading Mark straight through and you read chapter 8, verse 22, about the blind man being healed, and then you kept on going, eventually you would reach chapter 10. And in chapter 10, you would see another account of another blind man being healed. Now, that may make you ask the question, is this kind of like the bookends of something? Well, you would also notice a geographical shift. So the first eight chapters, Jesus was in Galilee, but the last part, he wanders away from Galilee. And then finally, with the very last bit of, of the rest of Mark, starting in chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so the geography even marks it off. So you've got Galilee, you've got not Galilee, and then you've got entering Jerusalem. And that not Galilee part is surrounded by this account of two blind men. Now between these two healings, Jesus is dealing with his disciples and really he is wrestling to help them to see what his mission is as a suffering Messiah. One of the ways we know this is that between chapters 8 and 10, and again, these are the chapters that we're going to be covering over the next six weeks, we're going to see a couple of cycles. And here's what the cycle is. Jesus will predict his death outright. His disciples will struggle to understand it, and then they will fail. They will fall on their face spectacularly in some way. Today, Peter actually pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. 
All right, so that would be disciple failure number one. In another section, uh, the disciples, after Jesus makes this prediction of his death, as if they didn't even hear it, they begin arguing who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then the third time, uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, they ask to be on Jesus' right hand and left hand when he returns in the kingdom. And so you'll have Jesus predict his death, the disciples fail, and then Jesus will teach what it really means to follow him. So we're going to see the first of those cycles today. Now, a second way that there's a connection between blind men and disciples is not just this blind man sandwich, okay, in this whole account. But it's also um, some undeniable literary things that are going on in the first two pieces of our section today. So the healing of the blind man and Peter's confession. There are some, some elements of this, and I'm going to put a chart up to help us see those things. First is geographic references. So the blind man takes place in a place called Bethsaida. And then the confession of Peter takes place in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Both of these are taking place in out-of-the-way places. So very, very curious. When Jesus heals this blind man, it says that he takes him out of the village. And then for this confession, he takes them on this long, we'll see, hike, where Peter confesses on the way. And so they're both in out-of-the-way places. In both accounts, Jesus tells them to keep it quiet. And that's why he says to the blind man, don't even go back to the village. He may have been begging there. He says, you go straight home. And to to the disciples, he says, don't tell anybody. Okay, so you've got this this secret thing. Then finally, you've got the, the questions. And so Jesus asked the blind man a question um, you know, how's it, how's it going? He checks up on his progress, and he asks the disciples several questions as well. Now, there's a third way that, you know, you've got the, the blind man sandwich, you've got these, these interesting literary parallels, and then finally you've got this very, very unusual healing that ties things together. It's a two-stage healing. Nowhere else does Jesus heal in stages. Generally, Jesus says a word, or he touches them, And instantaneously, it's done. Here, however, in verse 23, he uses saliva. Okay, that's interesting in itself. And there's an initial touch. And then in verse 24, Jesus checks on his progress. What do you see? And then in verse 25, he gives him a second touch. And finally, there is full healing. Is Jesus having a bad healing day? Well, or is something else going on? You've got this two-stage healing, and it is very, very much like the dawning of truth on the disciples um, as they see who Jesus is. So at first, they've gone from observing him like everyone else. They, they followed him, but they were green. Like they were watching these miracles in chapters 1 through 8 just like everybody else. And in fact, in one place in chapter 4, it says that they were filled with great fear after he calms the sea, and they say, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So they were asking the very question that Jesus was asking them today. And so Jesus asked them um, who people say he is. And so they consider this. And uh, then they kind of relay what the word on the street is. And so they say a couple different things, like John the Baptist. Now, if you're not familiar with John the Baptist, uh, he was Jesus' cousin. He was like the last of the thunderous Old Testament prophets. I mean, this was a colorful character. He was preparing the way of the Lord, but he got on the wrong side of Herod, the Tetrarch of the time, and and was beheaded. 
Herod himself wondered earlier if Jesus were John the Baptist reincarnated, come back to haunt him. Some people said he's Elijah. Now, this is another Old Testament prophet who has the distinction of being one of the few people in the Bible who don't die. Elijah was actually whisked up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So people expected him to return. Some people just said, well, he's just another prophet. And really, like Peter, anyone who says he's another prophet, they're correct because he is. But they're not completely correct. But then Jesus asked them, and we're talking about the stages of the disciples beginning to see, and you, who do you say that I am? Well, the wording is emphatic, and it shows how important it is the disciples are really clear on this because they're going to be Jesus' witnesses someday. They have to have an answer. Also, Jesus had said, you, you guys have the inside track, and so you better have a better answer than that. So Peter speaks as their spokesman, as he often is, and he says clearly, you are the Christ. Christ means anointed one. A lot of times that's what they called kings, anointed ones, but they were looking for a special king. They were looking for the Davidic king, a son of David, to come and be the savior. Now, how did Peter figure this out? Jesus in another passage, had said that God revealed this to him. But actually, Mark, even though it's called Mark, Mark is um, a, in fact, in First Peter that we just uh, finished, John, uh, Peter called John Mark his son. So in other words, they were very, very close. So John Mark, who is not an apostle, is writing Peter's account of things. And, and that's very, very important. So if you ask Peter, well, well, how did you know that Jesus is the Messiah? Peter says, I've seen enough. All those things that happened in chapters 1 through 8 of our account here, I've seen enough. I've seen healings and, and feedings of many people and demons being thrown out and you're teaching and I've seen enough. Now surely Peter's confident declaration that Jesus is the Messiah represents, like if we're saying it kind of like, you know, corresponds to the blind man, surely that represents full sight. Well, almost, but not quite. So he is right, Jesus is the Messiah, but... We're going to see very quickly here that his idea of the Messiah is dangerous and it is, it is not fully filled out. And so Jesus, the divine optometrist, he immediately begins to adjust that vision. So we see that for those who want to follow Jesus, just by the way this is doing this, the blind man's sandwich and then the two-stage healing and all these things, illumination is needed. Now, I said that following Jesus is a process of illumination. All right, so illumination is clearly needed for disciples, but what about this process? Well, the process is happening both through that multi-stage healing. You know, so, so Jesus is showing that he is going to engage with these disciples, and he's going to touch them as many times as he needs to to open their eyes. And um, in fact, the narrative closes with them still not fully seeing. So we see that illumination is not just something that's needed, but it is a process. But we also see this process, of the nature of the process of becoming a disciple through a hike. Now, um, I'm going to put up a map, and I don't do maps very often, but this is, this is important to this account. So you see there in the middle, in the red, underlined, it's Bethsaida, and that's where the blind man was healed. You can think of Bethsaida as kind of a, a place of blindness. But Jesus said, okay, guys, for the light bulb to go on, I'm going to take you 25 miles north to this other place, Caesarea Philippi. 
It's in Caesarea Philippi, uh, in this region that the highest point in Palestine is, Mount Hermon. It's a place that on a clear day, I hear, you can actually see 50 miles to Jerusalem. So what Jesus is doing here, he is teaching, and he's just such a master. He's teaching not just by his words and by his deeds, but also through where he is teaching. Jesus makes sure that the high point of the book, the declaration that he is the Messiah, takes place in a high place. He also makes sure the account says that he teaches them on their way. Now, as we go through uh, the accounts, chapters 8 through 10, over the next number of weeks, we're going to see that phrase four more times, either on the way or on the road. What this is telling us is that this is a journey. This is a process. Jesus, by going this way, he also makes sure that they are as far away as possible from Jerusalem, yet to remain in Israel. And so I think there's something he's doing there. He is saying the seat of power where the people who reject him are, I am showing you a new way. I am far from Jerusalem. And he also makes sure that they are very, very close to Gentile lands where someday the apostles are going to take the good news. They don't know it yet, from, but from this time forward in the account, they are going to be heading back to Jerusalem. Now, it's not a straight line. There's some zigzagging and moving around. But in Jesus' mind, they are on their way back to the confrontation in Jerusalem. And that begins to happen in chapter 11. All of this is designed to point to a process for these disciples. So I'd like to pause for just a second. And I'd like to think about illumination and process for us as modern-day followers of Jesus. First of all, illumination. We need God's help. We need his healing hand. What this is going to do is call us to humility. If we need to have our eyes opened, then it's something that we're going to have to depend upon God for. So when I open the word, you know, wherever I do that in the morning, the very, very first thing, when you try to engage God's word, you should be saying, God, open up my eyes. You may pray like the psalmist who says this, God, in your light do I see light. That's an acknowledgement that God's hand is on the light switch of illumination. Only when he flips it will I see him, and then I will see. Before my interaction with people, I need to remind myself that I need illumination. Like I may be blind to the, the crying need that is right in front of me. I may not hear that person unless God opens my eyes. So I need to be praying, God, open my eyes in this interaction right now. When somebody points out a flaw in me, if I believe that I need illumination, I'll be a lot more open to say like, well, maybe, just maybe, they're seeing something that I do not see. When I am in God's word or I'm listening to music or somebody is witnessing to me of his, his power, and all of a sudden God shows me something aspect of his character that I just never seen before, I can only say, thank you, God. Thank you for opening up my eyes. And sometimes I encounter humans being human. Folk are folk, aren't they? They do things. And sometimes when I encounter the blindness of another human, where I'm thinking I'd be tempted to judge them and say, they should know better than this. Well, if I realize that I am much more like them than I'm not like them, and that I need to have my eyes opened, and that they need to have their eyes open, I'm going to be a lot more charitable. 
And so illumination is something we desperately need as disciples. But process. We've talked about how following Jesus can sometimes be a process. And I'd just like to ask you today, where are you in this process? You know, if we're thinking geographically, maybe you're back in Bethsaida. Maybe you're, maybe you're, you're blind. Like you're like, I, I don't get it. I, I think he's just a man, a good teacher, etc. And you're like, I, I'm not sure about following Jesus at this time. Well, you'd, you'd be back in Bethsaida right now. Now, back in Bethsaida, there was a whole group of blind men. Um, they weren't physically blind, and we didn't read about them today, but it was a group that was antagonistic to Jesus, and it says that they came to argue with him and to test him. The account also says that he just leaves them behind. You know, if I were to go out to uh, Costco, or I were to go out to uh, Wawa, or, you know, Duck Donuts on Main Street, and just, like, ask somebody, like, hey, who do you think Jesus is? Um, what answers would I get? Well, in a past life, um, I did some interviews in various locations in Boston where I asked just that question, you know, what do you think of Jesus? And uh, the answers that I got, most of them were of the, he is a good man and or a great teacher kind of answer. And so one person would say this, he's just a man, but he was a really good teacher, kind of like Buddha or Muhammad or Gandhi. A Muslim man I spoke to spoke of him very, very reverently. He said, oh, he's a prophet. And uh, so he would put Jesus right after Muhammad as, as a prophet. My boss at UPS when I was church planning um, was a Buddhist, and I asked him about it. And he said, he said well, he, he, was, he was just a, another mystic to kind of help us away, you know, on our way to a higher consciousness. And I think he probably shared that, that view with, say, somebody who would be Hindu or in a new age sort of um, stream of things. You know, I can appreciate those who see him as a great teacher. He is the greatest teacher, but he is not only a great teacher. And if that's what you think, then you're still in Bethsaida. Some people would answer that Jesus is a revolutionary. You know, Jesus' name has been invoked to do a lot of crazy things. I mean, his name has been slapped on peasant uprisings, Um, His name has been invoked to sit on mountaintops and wait for the end of all things. Um, You know, Jesus was concerned about the poor, and he was very revolutionary for the entire system of Judaism, and he wasn't afraid to shake things up, and he did speak of end times, but it doesn't take much reading to see that these behaviors don't align with his mission. He was not a political revolutionary or a wild-eyed apocalyptic prophet So if you think that's the case with him, you're still in Bethsaida. But I would encourage you to answer the question that he himself asked of you. But you, who do you say that I am? And you have something that many of the people there didn't have. You actually have the full revelation of God where you can actually read four different accounts of who he is and wrestle with them yourself. And I would just encourage you to do that. Don't stay in the place of blindness. Boy, I commend you if, if you're just like, hey, I'm not buying this yet. I commend you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for putting yourself and just giving God's word a hearing. So you may be blind still. Maybe you're, you're fuzzy. You're kind of like the blind man walking around seeing tree, you know, people that look like trees or just colors. Um, that really describes some of Jesus' followers some of the time. You know, the Gospel of Mark closes with them, and they still did not understand his prediction of his death. They didn't get it until he was resurrected. 
but they are commended because they stayed in the process. And I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Pray for that illumination and be encouraged. The fact that Jesus like used saliva, you know, Jesus was like getting very, very personal. He was, he was not afraid to get, get personal and, and get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to check in on your progress. He is not afraid to wrestle with you over the long haul and go through these cycles of your failure. But be aware, he is always going to be moving you and me toward a confrontation at a cross in Jerusalem. You know, maybe it's time for you, you would say, yeah, I'm a little bit agnostic, a little bit fuzzy, to get off the fence. For a while, you've been thinking like, yeah, I actually think there's something to this. In fact, when I read an account like this, and, and you've got like Peter, um, you know, giving, actually recording his own failures, like that just has the ring of truth about it, doesn't it? Maybe you just need to get off the fence. And maybe the next thing for you is a step of obedience. You need to say like, like some of the people just did today, I need to declare that Jesus is Lord and be baptized. And that'll be the thing that'll kind of move you away from fuzziness to clarity. Or maybe in this process you say, I'm seeing clearly. Mark chapter 1 verse 1 starts with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, clearly the writer got there. He believed that he was the Son of God. As verse 25 says of the blind man, he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. That's what happens when you actually confess Jesus as your Lord, ask him to forgive you. You see clearly. You realize what he came to do. But I will warn you that even then, even when you see clearly, you are just then entering a whole other period of illumination and process. I mean, that's been my experience. I professed Christ at a very, very young age, at age six. As a teen, I, I wrestled about it, what, what it meant for me to, to live um, at a public high school and to, to be a Christian in that environment. As a college student, I began to learn more about theology and that kind of thing and, and God's ways and how he did things, and it just it blew my mind. Then as a young man in ministry, I was challenged over what it meant to live a life of freedom in Christ. And since then, over the years, my understanding of how Scripture relates to Scripture, it just keeps on just, just opening up to me even more and more. And I'm praying that the divine optometrist will just keep at it. He'll just keep sitting me in that chair and saying, Evan, which is clear, one or two? One or two? And he'll start working on me that way. But we have to stay humble and stay in that chair. So following Jesus is a process of illumination. There's only two points. This is the second one. Following Jesus means living from God's point of view. Well, Peter's confession draws a couple of reactions from Jesus. And so first he tells them to be quiet in verse 30. He says, don't tell anyone about him. And this Messiah talk was, was dynamite. Uh, it could set off a chain of events that Jesus didn't want at that time. Plus, Jesus had a lot of work to do on their uh, understanding. If they, if they went out half-baked and began declaring this, this, this was not a good thing. He had much work to do before they broadcast it. And so it says in verse 31, and he began to teach them. Well, that's a really important phrase because it kicks off a theme that's going to just like dominate the rest of this book. The and then 
tips us off that this next phase of Jesus' teaching just couldn't happen until they had confessed him as Messiah. So now that they had gotten the lesson from chapters 1 through 8, you're the Messiah, Jesus says, okay, now we're ready for the next stage of teaching. Um, in that sense, it's, it's kind of like math. You know, the math they're teaching kids these days. The other day, one of my kids, I was trying to help my seventh grader with exponential equations. And I was like, hey, hey, Google, how do you do it? You know, and, and, you know, and what came up was like, yeah, I know these rules like products and quotients and, and all these intimidating things. You know, I was a word-based guy. You know, math wasn't really my thing. But, you know, finally you get the rules and you start trying to apply them and then you got to know which one's the numerator and which one's the denominator. And good grief. You know, it's just like math. It builds on, right? Well, Jesus says, all right, I'm, I'm going to have to, yeah, I can't move on until you get my identity right. And uh, even though they get this, this rote answer, you're the Christ, Jesus has a lot of work to do before he builds on. And so Jesus sets about, in these next verses, adjusting their point of view. He does this in a couple of ways. He does this, first of all, by predicting his death, and second, by calling them to follow him in it. He predicts his death, and he does this in verses 31 through 33. Jesus knew that they could not accept what was coming until they accepted that death was part of his mission as Messiah. He predicts it outright, but even from the outset, he tells them something about who he is. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now, if you're like, mm, a little fuzzy on that, what's that mean? Well, you wouldn't be alone. I think Jesus' followers were a little bit like, yeah, I think I've heard that before. But it may have puzzled them even. So they knew, or they thought they knew, what a Messiah does. Really, really clear vision of the Messiah. He was in the line of David. He was a king. He was supposed to come to Jerusalem. He was supposed to kick out the pagans. And he was supposed to set up a righteous kingdom. That's what a Messiah does. But this son of man guy, hmm, a little shaky on what he is. Well, in calling himself the son of man, Jesus is, is being enigmatic again. And it's, it's really brilliant what he does. Uh, if you're a note taker, you can jot down Jan Daniel chapter 7. Okay, That's for your afternoon reading. We're not, we're not doing it right now. But in Daniel 7, this character, the son of man, appears. And this son of man is an exalted figure. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Sounds pretty Messiah-like, right? Glory. But as you read on in verses 25 and through 27 in Daniel chapter 27, we find out that this son of man lives in a time of intense suffering for the people of God. In fact, there's a pagan ruler, and here's the phrase, that wears out the saints of the Most High. Wears them out. Wow, that doesn't sound good, does it? But Jesus doesn't reject the title Messiah. Instead, he defines it with a different title. He says, the Messiah, I'm a son of man type Messiah. Son of man is literally child of humanity. Wow, that's really beautiful, isn't it? Child of humanity. The message is, I think, that he's giving us is, number one, I identify with you. We believe that God is, that Jesus Christ is fully man, and he is fully God. The message is, I identify with you. And then the message is also, as the Son of Man is, I will be glorified. But get this, I will be glorified in the context of intense suffering. 
In verse 31, Jesus begins to lay it out plainly, we see in verse 32. He's going to give his blueprint for his, uh, his strategy for his kingship. It is, number one, to suffer many things. Two, to be rejected by the ruling class in Jerusalem and killed. And three, to rise again after three days. Well, Jesus had hinted that this may be the case earlier in chapter 2, but now he's getting really explicit with it. And Peter heard him loud and clear, and he was alarmed. Peter pulls Jesus aside for some Messiah 101. So first of all, he may think like, hey, 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 Jesus, none of that now. Not none of this self-defeating talk. Jesus, you got this, man. But also he said, Jesus, you got to know something about this Messiah. Rule number one for Messiahs is you don't get killed by the authorities. All right? In fact, if you want to put a, a false Messiah t-shirt on, just get killed. That, that's what that says. Okay, Jesus? He's trying to, like, you know, help him out here. Well, Jesus' counter-rebuke is fierce. Uh, he says, it says, turning around and seeing his disciples. Um, I think... Peter probably come alongside of him, and Jesus turns around. He's like, these guys are watching this. And then he says, okay, Peter, here comes the hammer. And uh, he dismisses him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Well, he tells him to get out of the way of God's plan. Now, throughout the entire book, the opponent of Jesus has been Satan. And really, even through Peter's agency, here he is again. One commentator says that Peter's plan is so much at odds with the thoughts of God as to be attributed to a more supernatural source. But Jesus is clear. If you're going to follow me, you've got to take my point of view. And my point of view sees humiliation and suffering as necessary for the Messiah. That's one way he does it. But then he turns around and he calls his followers to follow him. We see this in verse 34 on. It's interesting, um, all of a sudden, it says, in calling the crowds to him with his disciples, like, wait a second, they were on this long hike, where'd the crowds come from? Well, that's classic Mark, um, no, no transition, just action. So he's somewhere else now. So having predicted his death, Jesus calls those who would follow him to follow him. So he's going to give us a couple different demands, then he's going to give two reasons, and then he's going to give a promise. Demands. If anyone would come after me, do you see that condition? If, okay, you've got to make a decision here. Let him, okay, number one, deny himself. Two, take up his cross. And three, follow me. Three demands if you want to come after me. What are they? Deny yourself. Now, the Bible talks plenty about denying your, your sins, denying earthly passions. We spoke about some of them in the series in First Peter. But this is not one of those places, okay? This denying yourself is something even bigger than saying no to your sins. One commentator put it wonderfully, said, not the thing the self wants, but the self itself. Think of when you believe that you had the rights, even as Larry said earlier, to call the shots in your life. That is what you're denying. You're saying, I deny the identity as boss in my life. In that time, you had goals. Maybe they were modest goals. Maybe you just want to like, have a decent life, be somewhat comfortable, and raise some nice people. 
Maybe your goals were more aggressive, having to do with, with wealth and power and prestige. But really, whether your goals are modest or whether they're really aggressive, it doesn't matter. Because now, in order to deny yourself all of your personality, all of your talent, all of the resources you possess are put in the service of another. You deny the you who maintains the right to be the boss. Now, some things in a person who is denying themselves, it may look kind of like similar to your neighbor who may not be a follower of Jesus. You may have the same title at work. You may drive a similar model of vehicle. You may live in the same neighborhood. You may volunteer your time, and they volunteer their time. But here's the thing. When somebody else is calling the shots, your values are entirely different. Now, some things may look the same to an onlooker, but some things look very, very different. You know, as I look around Ogletown, even this last week, I see a bunch of uh, different people around here. I see people doing strange things. Like, if this is the way that you're going to pursue the good life, I'm not sure if this is the way you would do it. Things like this. Why would a bunch of ladies go out on a cold and rainy Tuesday night to read a book and to talk to each other? Why would uh, somebody drag their kids out on a Wednesday night, on a school night, to memorize scripture? Why would somebody, as we just witnessed, kind of go through the, I don't know, the not embarrassment, but getting up in front of a bunch of people and giving a testimony and maybe even like denying the baptism of their infancy in order to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and be connected to a new body in Christ? Why would you go through that? Why would anybody except a placement that they knew would turn their lives upside down? Why would somebody donate 100 plus hours to the search for a candidate to disciple children and teens? Why would somebody leave their wife and their baby to go hang out at some winter retreat with a bunch of teenagers, the kids that are not their own? Why would somebody spend hours a week drafting an agenda for somebody at the church so that they could lead that meeting well? Why would somebody open up their beautiful pool to a bunch of teens who eat their food and drip on their floors and park on their grass? Why, why, why would you do this? This is not the way you, you get the good life. Why would somebody give a large gift without claiming a tax break? Why would somebody sell their house and go to a far distant land where maybe they get malaria and and, you know, and allergies and stuff. Why, why would you do this? That's weird behavior. Is this normal? Is this the most efficient way to realize a good life? Or is this evidence of all the talents and resources and ambitions and goals being put in the service of another? Something is making these people do these crazy inefficient things, and maybe it is this, denying themselves. So you have to deny yourself. Second, Jesus says you need to take up your cross. You know, sometimes we, uh, we use that as just kind of like flippantly, as something just kind of annoying. It's just a cross that I have to bear. Well, you know, we might say my, my bad eyesight, you know, that's a cross I have to bear. Or, or the, of all the sweet little boys in the world I had to get, I had to get this wild cat, you know, where I got into this, this relationship and now it's just a cross that I have to bear. But it's a lot more than that, more than a bothersome hardship. The cross calls to mind a shameful and painful practice of carrying your own crossbeam to a place of execution. For Jesus, that became literal. For his followers, it could be a picture. 
And we can tell that because in verse 38, he says that that's what his disciples are going to do until the end of the age. So long after the Romans are gone and mercifully this, this form of execution is gone, his disciples are still going to be doing that. Luke chapter 9 mentions that you do this daily. I mean, how many times can you, you know, be executed? No. Well, he says it's daily. So you see, it, it's, it could be literal, but it's also a picture. But guys, if this is a picture, it's a picture with some teeth in it. It's really radical. Followers in that context had to be willing to risk their lives literally. And shame was part of the package deal. But you and I can take part of it too because really the focus is not whether or not I'm going to be martyred. The focus is whether or not I'm going to say no to my self-preservation even if it means death. And that is a decision that you and I can make, a decision that we must make. So he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, the language here is a little bit circular. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, in other words, follow me, he says, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. So wait, does that sound like a circle to you? If you want to follow me, you must follow me. Well, I think the point is here that, that if you want to follow him, it's not enough to say, I wanna, I'm interested in following Jesus. You've got to take action. You must follow me, Jesus says. That means I pay attention to his words. They carry weight to me. I need to notice the way that Jesus treats others and to begin to treat them like that. I need to enter into his sufferings daily and, and thank him for it. And we have to stick with it because Jesus completed his mission. And if we're going to follow the one who did that, we have to stick to it. So Jesus gives a couple of demands. He also gives some uh, reasons. So in verse 35, we see a couple of words. We see the words, whoever would save his life will lose it. So those three words, save, life, and lose. Uh, he begins to do a little bit of wordplay with them, but it's really not all that hard to, uh, to follow if you just think about it. So whoever would save his life, in other words, I refuse to follow Jesus, like I'm not going to give my life to another. If you want to save your life in that way, you will lose it. In other words, you won't have eternal life. That is how you lose your life. But then it says, whoever loses your life for my sake, in other words, you give up calling the shots, preserving your life, you follow Jesus, and in the sense you've given your life away, will save it. In other words, acquire eternal life speaks of gaining the whole world. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You know, that's an exaggeration, but it reflects what we tend to think of our own potential, doesn't it? I just think like, well, I am gonna, I'm going to get it all. I am gonna, I'm going to be the top of my field. I'm going to gain everything. We think we have limitless potential, and it speaks to that. But if we do that, we will lose it. And then ask the question, what can a man give? And the answer is nothing. Eternal life can't be bought with riches or power or prestige. There's nothing you can give, even if you gain the whole world. And so he asks these. And then second, he says, the people who do not claim him, he will deny them. People who repudiate Jesus will suffer eternal consequences. And these are just really strong words by Jesus. If we deny him by refusing to follow him, he will deny us. 
Something encouraging about this, though, is if you know the story of Peter, who wrote this, we know that this is ultimate denial because Peter did indeed deny Jesus three times, but Jesus restored him. And then finally, he gives some demands, he gives some reasons, and then he gives a promise. So in chapter 9, verse 1, and this is kind of a transition to next week, what we're going to see, something called the transfiguration, um, the disciples had to be reeling with the enormity of what Jesus is saying. Like, how, how is this going to work? But verse, chapter 9, verse 1, kind of serves as, as a uh, assurance, an assurance. He says, guys, I know this looks bleak, all this talk about dying, but let me tell you this. It says, some of you, in other words, a few of you, and next week we're going to see that that's Peter, James, and John, would not taste death. In other words, some people would taste death before seeing this. Not all of them are going to go up on that mountain. But some of them were going to see this. They're going to see the kingdom of God. I think the best way to see this, though there's tons of debate on it, is that what happens next week is a preview of the glory of the kingdom of God that's going to be revealed. So, in closing, five statements I think that will help us live from God's point of view. Because following Jesus means living according to God's point of view. I just ask you a question here, kind of to summarize these statements. Did we really think that following Jesus would leave us unchanged? Number one, I must take that if seriously. Anyone can follow, but there's an if. You got to decide. You can't sit on the fence. Two, I must renounce my right to be self-directed. As we discussed, that self-autonomy, the right to call the shots in my life, to say, like, my talents, my wealth, all this stuff is for me. I will go after my goals. you got to renounce it. You can't be self-directed. You've got to put it in service of another. Three, I have to let go of my own self-preservation, even if it means death. There are brothers and sisters in this world that are facing that truly. They are embracing the possibility of death, but even us Westerners have to settle this in their minds. Make the decision. Four, I must be willing to share the shame that comes with his name, taking up the cross. Mostly gone are the days when bringing up your faith outside these walls or outside the walls of your home is applauded. When you bring your faith into the public square, you're told, take it back indoors. Mostly gone are the days when being Christian is respectable. Now often we are seen as the problem. And assuming that it's faithfulness to Christ that makes them draw that conclusion, we embrace the shame. Five, I must examine my view of material things. Boy, we are in danger, all of us. We have so much but we have to have a loose hold on our material blessings. We must use them for kingdom purposes. And we have to be clear on this question. What can a man or woman give in return for his or her own life with a resounding nothing? You can have this whole world. You can take it all, but give me Jesus. And six, I must claim his name. You must claim him for him to claim you. If you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. So in the passage today, I think we see that illumination is a work of God, that following him is a process, 
and that we have to live with a certain point of view, a way of seeing ourselves and accepting his standards. So for a couple of people just in different processes here, very briefly, if you're still back in Bethsaida questioning and testing Jesus, again, as I said, we're so glad you're here. But let me also encourage you, have an open mind. Read and inquire. And even, even if you don't believe yet, ask God to open up your eyes. Ask him to illuminate you. We'd also love for, to take you to Mount Hermon and point you, say, look, look far over there. You see that cross? You've got to get to the cross. I know we say this a lot, but there are no perfect here. We're not sitting here saying, like, why? Why can't you see? Because this is a work of God. But if you are starting to say, like, wow, I think I'm beginning to see or I want to see, then, then reach out. We would love to pray with you in that. Curtis used to say of Ogletown, we are a family who follows Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. We'd love to be that for you. If you're one of those strange ones doing things that don't make sense in pursuing the good life, let me encourage you to keep on. We are a family of believers, and we are building one another up. And then finally, if you do see clearly who Jesus is, let me just encourage you that illumination is a process that doesn't stop. Be humble before him. In your interactions with others, in the word, ask God to open up your eyes because he's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep you in that chair and just keep going clearer one, clearer two. And we need to stay in the chair. Don't bolt. And really, no matter who you are, I trust you'll stay with us for a few weeks as we learn what it means to, to follow the servant. Would you pray with me? Father, we love stories. Thank you for uh, moving holy men of old like Peter and, and John Mark to record them for us. Lord, I do pray um, for each one of us here. Lord, there is not a one of us that does not need your light, that doesn't need your guidance. Not a one of us who get weary in the process. But Lord, I help, pray, help us see you clearly. Lord, help us to be a humble people. Help us to be a graceful, grace, gracious and charitable people. Father, I pray if there's anybody here that, that wants to see, who would come to Jesus and say, please open my eyes, that you would do so today and that they would confess him and see clearly through the work of your spirit. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.